this popular understanding of awakening is really oversimplified and, and in some ways misunderstood. So there are stages of human development, which we know from developmental psychology, there are stages that every human being goes through. And then beyond the ego, there are stages of spiritual development that fewer people go through. And each of these stages can be identified as an awakening. But what seems to happen is there's a, there's, people lose the distinction between a state and a stage. So someone can experience a state of consciousness, even on a psychedelic, or in a particular meditation, or prayer, or chanting practice. They experience a state and they think they've attained something. And then the state evaporates because it's not established as a stage from which they can operate, right? And so that distinction I think is really important in the languaging of awakening. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Dr. Connie Zweig to discuss her book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening. Connie discusses the nuances of awakening, the importance of recognizing the distinction between states of consciousness and stages of development, transferring the image of the divine onto others, longing for the beloved, and the challenges of spiritual bypassing. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Dr. Connie Zweig, PhD, is a retired psychotherapist, writer, climate reality leader, and citizens climate lobbyist. She has been on a spiritual path practicing and teaching meditation for more than 50 years, exploring the light and dark side of contemporary spirituality. Known as the Shadow Expert, she is the co-author of Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow, the novel A Moth to the Flame, The Life of the Sufi Poet Rumi, and the best-selling The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, which won both the 2021 American Book Fest Award and the 2021 Best Indie Book Award for Inspirational Nonfiction. She joins me today to discuss her latest publication, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening. Connie, welcome back to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you, Nick. It's so good to be here with you. Yeah, I'm so delighted to have you back and have this conversation. I really enjoyed the last one we had about your book, The uh, Inner Work of Age. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this one. Uh, I think that this is a really important book. Now, if I uh, understand correctly, this is the third edition of a previous work, uh, which was originally titled The Holy Longing, The Hidden Power of Spiritual Yearning. That's uh, correct. And I think that was originally published in 2003, so 20-year anniversary. <laughs> yeah, so the original book was based on my PhD dissertation, mm -hmm. 
and it explored the yearning or longing that many people feel to go beyond ego, a longing for transcendence, for the divine, for non-duality, whatever we call it. And I wanted to kind of use psychology to try to understand that. And then things unfolded in my life. I ended up meeting a number of people who were in advanced levels of consciousness and it really shaped my way of thinking about this. And so another edition came out. And then more recently, we had the Me Too movement and we had a lot more scandals. And so, and my own sort of development and understanding of the issue has really deepened. And so I wanted to kind of really revise the book, not just the timeliness, but the insights that I've gained to be able to share them with people who are struggling with religious betrayal or spiritual disillusionment. Mm, yeah, wonderful. And it seems like it's so necessary right now. I, I think that especially in the United States, we are undergoing a transformation of religion. We see people leaving the Christian church in droves, actually. And that doesn't mean that they're abandoning Christianity or spirituality, but there's something it seems to be at play that doesn't sit right with them anymore. You know, and we're also, and this is something I wanted to talk to you about, starting to see a lot more, I think, of the kind of the dark side of the new age movement. I, I think the, my archetype for that is the QAnon shaman, <laughs> Jake and Jelly, right? And I, and I want to use this as a lead into my first real question for you, because a lot of what is focused on in the book is this idea of awakening. And that's also the focus in so many spiritual traditions of awakening and enlightenment. And in a lot of the discourse that I've seen online in particular, I, I usually see awakening or enlightenment associated with knowledge. And, you know, it, someone has awakened to a truth. And I've personally grown very, very suspect of that. And so, and that's where I think the QAnon shaman comes in because he claims to have awakened to this kind of truth, right? So I thought that we could begin this conversation with a very simple question. What is awakening? Yeah, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> right. As soon as you said simple, I knew you were going to do that. Yeah. Okay. So... You know, I've been sitting in meditation since I was 19, and I now have 74 years of life experience. And so I've been doing practices for a long time and in it been in various communities and studied this, studied all the mystical traditions for a long time. And my, which is, you know, partly why I wanted to revise the book because this popular understanding of awakening is really oversimplified and, and in some ways misunderstood. So there are stages of human development, which we know from developmental psychology, there are stages that every human being goes through. 
And then beyond the ego, there are stages of spiritual development that fewer people go through. And each of these stages can be identified as an awakening. But what seems to happen is there's a there's people lose the distinction between a state and a stage. So someone can experience a state of consciousness, even on a psychedelic, or in a particular meditation, or prayer, or chanting practice. They experience a state, and they think they've attained something. And then the state evaporates, because it's not established as a stage from which they can operate, right? And so that distinction, I think, is really important in the languaging of awakening. So if you, there's a wonderful book I read many decades ago called Coming Home by Lex Hickson. And he talks about how the root experience of transcendence is the foundation for all the religious traditions. That each founder of a tradition experienced a transcendence of the small self of the ego and that was then that was transmitted and then it was distorted by the followers of each generation right so today the same thing is happening we have a lot of people having profound spiritual experience who have different languages and frameworks for it so there's a kind of a tower of babel in this in this arena and, and so then some part of them grabs onto that state experience and says, well, that's me, that's who I am now, and I'm ready to teach. And so there are all these people out there who are teaching, having had just this single experience and not necessarily establishing a higher level of consciousness. So... You know, depending on your tradition, these higher levels of consciousness are described mostly the same, but with dis some distinctions. And so I would say that awakening is this process of going through these stages in which we ultimately realize a kind of oneness, a kind of unity with all living things. And I don't know if you've listened to Bat Gap, Buddha at the Gas Pump, but the moderator of that podcast has like 700 interviews now of people who think they're waking up. And they all describe very different things, very different qualities and traits and states. So, and yet there's some commonalities in their descriptions when you listen to enough of them. So, you know, what I wanted to do in this book was kind of help people understand some of the nuances about awakening. Ken Wilber's integral teachings have been really helpful to me and useful about this. For example, many of us, when we started out on the path, thought that awakening would be generalized and it would kind of contaminate all aspects of who we are. But Wilbur has discovered that our lines of development are actually separate. 
So someone can be awake on a spiritual line of development or advance spiritually, but morally or emotionally be very undeveloped. And that's one of the reasons why we see people acting out their shadows who we believe to be enlightened. Someone yeah. can be very highly emotionally developed and related and skillful at communication, but be cognitively undeveloped or spiritually undeveloped. And that is a reframing on what awakening is because it doesn't necessarily mean everything happens at once. Like you said, we, we perceive a truth. Well, the, the ultimate truth that we would perceive with, awakening would be the unity of all life but that's not a truth with with content that's not a concept that's not a well it is a concept for most people but it's a direct perception for awakening it's not a truth as in a belief hmm. it's an experience so I think there are a lot of these nuances that kind of get lost in the larger world of the spirit in the spiritual arena. And each teacher has a language, a vernacular, and a lineage often um, that sees this differently. Yeah, I really like the idea of making the distinction between a state and a stage. Because, you know, so many people think that if they have this enlightened or awakened experience, that that's it, they're done. But as you note, I love this line that you had in the book, one may be awake at some level and still be a sociopath. Yes. Yeah. So that's a very disturbing idea to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Because a personality disorder like sociopathy or narcissism doesn't necessarily get healed or transformed by a spiritual awakening. And that helps us to understand how some teachers can be so abusive. They don't have empathy or they're self-centered. They don't have much moral development. And so they continue to kind of get their own needs met from their students even as they're transmitting Shakti or knowledge, right? And that is that can be very disturbing to people who experience it directly. Yeah, it's got to be quite confusing for the people who experience it as well, especially since they see this person as an enlightened, awakened being, and yet then experience all of this negativity. So it seems as if the shadow is at play on multiple levels, not just the guru or the teacher, but also with the practitioner and the devotee. That's right. So we all have our blind spots and we all have unprocessed shadow material. Even people in higher levels of consciousness still have unprocessed shadow material. So if we have a kind of naivete as we enter a spiritual community and we project unconsciously attribute to a teacher that he or she is whatever, compassionate or perfect or an ideal parent or all-knowing, 
And then we start to see red flags that this teacher may be unkind or maybe self-centered or maybe greedy. In our shadow, we're gonna deny that. Mm. We're gonna stuff that awareness back into the unconscious because we become so enchanted and attached to that relationship that we don't wanna know. And I interviewed many people who told me they didn't wanna know because their whole world would fall apart and they'd feel like a fool, right? And so it becomes a reflection on them if that's actually the case. So there's, so what happens is, you know, we start out thinking we'll find a teacher in a practice and everything will be light and roses. And then we meet that shadow in ourselves, in this case, denial, but it could be something else too. It could be wanting to be special, needing to be seen, needing to belong, needing to keep secrets like you did in your family. And then that shadow material in us matches with the shadow in the, in the teacher. It could be a minister or a shaman or a roshi or a guru, but that person also has shadow material and unmet childhood needs. And so let's say he or she starts getting attached to the adoration of the students, to the money from the students, to the subservience of the students. And so there's this shadow dance going on there, almost like what happens in couples, mm. you know? Underneath the conscious awareness, there's this shadow dance going on and people get very hooked in and it becomes difficult to lead, to separate from both sides. Mm. You know, it isn't only the students who need to separate if things become abusive, but also the teachers at some point, from my point of view, it's their responsibility to return the projection. And that doesn't happen very much, right? Right. We're trained as clinicians to learn the right moment when we return the transference in psychotherapy or the projection so that the, the patient can carry it for herself. And in the spiritual arena, that should also be happening. God, guru, self are all the same, right? All the teachers mm -hmm. say that, but they don't actually live it if they keep students in a dependent, subordinate, childlike position, and especially working for low pay, you know, separated from their families and friends, and keeping secrets about the teacher, whether it's sexual secrets or abusive power or money or whatever it is. Yeah. That, yeah, there's a lot of power involved, I think, and, and, and the abuse of the, the 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 power. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is maybe we can go in a little bit deeper here in terms of some of the psychology that's at play, because you mentioned the transference and I, I and also projection, and I am a little bit. I'm always a little bit unclear on the distinction between the two is transfers a kind of projection. But I think that what's also happening here is 
at play is this image of the divine. And I think that, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly. I should know this, but it's the image of Dai. Imago Dei. Imago Dei, thank you. That is that image of the divine that the person has within. And if I understand correctly, they project it outwards. And then there is the emotional transference of something. Am I getting all that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Transference is a kind of projection in which we are attributing to the other person, a parent, mm. a good mother, a bad mother, a good father, a bad father. And the other person carries that for us, which is what happens often in psychotherapy. But it also happens in these clergy disciple relationships. So the Imago Dei is um, the image of God that most people carry unconsciously from early religious training. And we get some idea of what the divine looks like personified. And we may or may not be aware of that, but in my own experience, I remember at 19 when I first saw the yogi whose meditation I was learning, the long hair and the white robes and the whole, and sitting on the dais, something resonated in me. Something was familiar, even though it was not in my culture, not in my religious background, something resonated. And I realized later that's what it was. It was the image of the ideal human being who was free of attachment and who was liberated in some way or awake. So a similar thing happens when we fall in love. You know, we feel that resonance with that person as some with some idealization mm -hmm. that happens. And so on the other side, the person carrying the projection, imagine what he or she feels if hundreds or millions of people in India are carrying, are, are projecting that ideal onto you. And you live with that, you carry that. The Dalai Lama, millions of people are projecting that. And so there's this you know, dance that's happening with the projection, in some cases transference, the sending of the arrow and the receiving of the arrow. And that bond is made then with the image of the ideal human and the imperfect human who's wanting to affiliate, wanting to be close, wanting to learn from, wanting to imitate. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in a lot of spiritual communities, people imitate their teachers, mm -hmm. how they talk, how they walk, how they eat, right? Yeah. So there's that sense of wanting to take it in the teacher in order to become like that. And most of this is unconscious mm. that's going on. Most of it is not a conscious process of, well, now I see my human ideal and I'm going to become <laughs> like him, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's the imitation of Christ. That's exactly what I understand it as. Exactly. Yeah. And that longing as well. I know that that's part of the Hindu tradition with bhakti. But also in Christian mysticism, there's that sort of the, I always know them as the love mystics yeah. and in Sufism as well. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. But there's uh, also part of this, isn't there also, I think you write about, there's this longing for union, but separation is also part of that, right? That, you know, it's inherent in any union. And I think, isn't that also a major aspect in many traditions? I can see this in Judaism. It seems to be central is this notion of exile. Yeah, you're reminding me of the story of Rumi and his teacher and how when they were together, he wouldn't write poetry. But when the teacher would leave and he'd feel the longing in that separation, all these verses would come exploding out of him. So the separation is an inherent part of the togetherness because there are separate individuals there even if they experience some state of union during lovemaking or meditation or a higher level of consciousness, there's still inherently a separation. And they both, and those, both of those serve a purpose. And so this longing is something that's inherent in us that we long for union. Is it that we long for union just in general uh, in many ways, or is there a specific longing for the divine? You know, I don't know that anybody knows the answer to that. <laughs> oh, my <bad. laughs> intuition, my intuition, because of the timelessness, you know, the centuries of spiritual poetry and scripture and devotional practices. My intuition is that there's something in the human soul that longs for the beloved. Mm. And we can call it home. Some people imagine it as longing for their for home. Some people imagine it as longing for belonging or for love or for union. And so there's these different ways of seeing it and imagining it, but it's this you know, inherent kind of restless yearning in us that tells us there's something more. Mm. And so I think different people would define that something more differently as I just did, you know? Mm. Some of that depends on our traditions and some of it depends, I think, on our sort of constitutional types but, and many people in my practice would tell me they didn't feel this. And so we can either think, well, those people are not seekers. They have a different purpose here, or they're just not aware of it yet. Who knows, right? I don't know. Yeah, it, it, I relate with that feeling of longing for home. I felt that for a long time in regards to Colorado. There's something about the Rockies that I keep saying, that's where my soul lives. And ah. I've always said that I've been in exile for a very long time. Ah. But as I was reading your book and just listening to what you were saying, it also seems to me that there's a correlation maybe with some psychological issues. Like, for example, I was thinking about depression. Because sometimes in depression, there seems to be a deep longing. There's a feeling of isolation and a feeling of longing. And it made me kind of wonder the connection between, in many ways, psychology and spirituality. 
because you know that one of the lines that I had written down here is that psychological growth and spiritual awakening are not the same animal. And I am just kind of curious about this connection between psychology and spirituality. And I understand that this is a loaded question because the root of psychology is psyche, which is soul. Yeah, but it's not soul in a theological sense. Right. You know, psych psyche in Greece was a different, it was psyche. Mm. It wasn't the soul that reincarnates through lifetimes. So, you know, this is a huge, this is like volumes, the relationship between psychology and spirituality. I think if we come back to our point about the distinction between state and stage, mm. the whole field of transpersonal psychology when I was growing up in the 70s was looking at these connections between the two fields and extending the psychological stages of development with the spiritual stages and trying to connect them. And, you know, eventually Ken Wilber's integral theory emerged from that and kind of took over for transpersonal psychology. So he and others have built these bridges between those fields. But if we look at depression as a state and we recognize that even in that state, someone can be having a spiritual experience. So we tend to think about depression in a monocolor way, but there can be many colors inside of it. So someone may be depressed, feeling purposeless or meaningless, disoriented, empty, and sit down to meditate and experience bliss or expansiveness or open-heartedness, right? So these states are not necessarily that distinct from each other, or, or I wanna say they can be overlapping from each other. And I think that's one of the reasons so many people are turning to plant medicine and psychedelics now for depression and other psychological issues, you know, because you can experience these other states and then you interpret reality from within your state at the moment. You see things differently, you frame it differently. So initially, I think when a lot of the Eastern teachers came to the West, there was this idea that we could use spiritual practice to cure psychological disorders. And that's pretty much, you know, out the window now. I mean, people now know this term spiritual bypass has become yeah. so popular. People now know that you can't bypass your emotional or psychological issues with spirituality. It doesn't resolve your mother complex or your post-traumatic stress from childhood. Um, you might, you know, yeah. So I think that in some ways the fields are overlapping and can be mapped together, but they also have a lot of distinct 
areas that we don't want to conflate with each other. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> I know it was a huge question to ask, yeah. uh, so thank you. And I'm glad that you mentioned spiritual bypassing because that's something I wanted to ask you about because I, in my mind, that is sort of the shadow at work in many ways. It's kind of denying the emotions and other aspects. And I think that was really important. So let me take us back a little bit, back to the image of God. And I wanted to ask you to expound on something here, because one of the things that you wrote was the image of God also evolves in tandem with the image of the archetypal shadow in us. And I was wondering if you could explain that a little Did bit. Did I say right? that? Yeah, I think so. I have it written down here. It's not me. The image <laughs> of God evolves in tandem with the shadow. Is that what I said? With the image of the archetypal shadow in us. Yeah. Oh, the image of the archetypal shadow. So maybe yeah. I was exploring good and evil. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. I don't remember the context for that sentence. Oh, okay. Um, I think, I, yeah, I don't remember the context of it. Oh, that's fine. I, I I won't look it up, but. But I can, let me, let me riff. Okay. Yeah, please. So, <laughs> you know, most religions divide light and dark and good and evil very in a binary way right very clearly and that was that all developed in the perennial traditions thousands of years ago before psychology before we understood that humans carry both darkness and light the complexity of the human psychology right the 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 theologies developed thousands of years ago so there is a field of study, the psychology of religion, that looks at the development of the image of God from childhood through adulthood. And those images can change in our lifetime. You know, we may grow up with an image of a king in a cloud, and then, you know, we're adolescents and we're, we're rebelling, and we may have an image of a revolutionary as kind of the peak of development. And then we move into adulthood and we may have an image of, I don't know, a goddess, let's say. And that image can change over a lifetime. But there are layers in the psyche. I'll give you an example. I was working with a man who was doing Buddhist meditation but he was struggling with a lot of guilt and shame and these meditation practices weren't really helping him with that. And he said he believes in Buddhism. He's a practicing Buddhist. He's a believer. And then I asked him what religion he grew up with and it was Catholicism. And as we explored, we found that he had this image of this wrathful, punitive Pope-like figure in his psyche that was shaming him every time he had a sexual thought. He wasn't aware that that was happening. And he was identifying as a Buddhist, so he wouldn't have had that kind of theological image consciously. But it was in there because of his early childhood exposure to it. So you know, one of my suggestions to older adults who are 
in the process of life completion and looking at completing spiritual unfinished business is to really see if you can excavate these images of God and uncover what might be coloring your life, your faith, your feelings about death, what might be shaping you that you're not aware of. So there's this connection between your image of God and your image of the devil or darkness or the shadow or evil, whatever we want to call it. There's that connection that you were, re that you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, what I was thinking about was along those lines, I think I was thinking in terms of like Jung and the answer to Job and that the, the image of God at some point has to incorporate the shadow somehow. It seems. Yeah, the dark side of God, he called yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's part of what happens when we meet the shadow of a spiritual teacher mm. who seems godlike to us in our innocence. And then who becomes this, you know, much fuller human being when we see the flaws and the failures and the hypocritical behavior or the abusive behavior. We see the dark side of our, our God, our ideal. And, you know, that's a critical moment in a person's life when you see that, like it was for Jung. It's a critical moment if you let yourself see it, if you don't, you know, rush into denial, but you actually allow yourself to see it. And I think the response is very individual. You know, um, some people suffer a lot of PTSD from these experiences, have a very hard time, feel betrayed and traumatized, and have to leave the community. Other people don't want to leave, don't want to separate, and they try to change the behavior and change the community. And I tell stories in the book about some communities who've been able to do that. Who ha, whose teachers have fallen from the pedestal and they're able to redesign things, systems. But it's a crucial moment in, in the journey, I think. We could say in the hero's journey. It's a moment of descent mm -hmm. when we meet that shadow of an idealized person and we recognize their humanity. And whatever else they're providing their wisdom and their compassion and uh, their knowledge, whatever else they're giving, it doesn't take that away. But it shows us that they're human and they're complicated and they have darkness just like everybody else. Chapter five is about all the anecdotes about the teachers, the scandals of the teachers. And it was difficult for me to do that research and write those stories. It was really difficult. And I, you know, I don't want it to be traumatic for people to read, but I do want it to be challenging because I think it's important for us to recognize what's going on and try to understand why is that happening? Why are so many teachers sexually assaulting their students now? or coercing them to give their, all their money away, or shaming and verbally abusing them. Why is this happening? And to come back to your original question, what does that say about awakening? Hmm. 
it's easy to dismiss it and say, well, if they're doing that, they're not awake. I mean, that's the easy answer, right? I think it's it's requiring a deeper look into human nature and an expansion of our meaning of religion and spirituality to include the human shadow, mm -hmm. which is a part of the story, no matter what. It's always there. Yeah. Well, it also seems like it is pushing for a reexamination of some of the beliefs as well. I recently interviewed an acquaintance of mine who I didn't know too well who wrote a book called The New Age Wasteland. His name is Darren Durda. And he had a very similar chapter where he was just going through, you know, one example after another, after another, after another of abuse and scandal and whatnot. And you touch upon this a little bit, I think, in the beliefs in the sense that there is, I think, a shadow, and I'll use a new age belief here uh, as the example of always thinking positive. And that seems that it can also carry a shadow because it's focusing on the light, but ignoring things and i think often it is done because there's no good clear theodicy in some of these non-theistic kind of traditions that they can't answer for human suffering so we'll just blame the victim they're just not thinking right well i think you know positive thinking can be helpful in some situations with depression and so forth but it's very partial treatment it doesn't get at the unconscious process. And in fact, it sort of implies that we have to stuff into the shadow everything that's not positive. So this is a common experience of people joining spiritual communities. They begin to hear the message of how they're supposed to be, think, feel, believe, right? And they begin to internalize that and build a spiritual persona. And behind the persona in the shadow are the doubts and the fears, the isolation, the, the lack of the fraud, the feeling of fraudulence, the feeling of fear, the fear of abandonment. So all the unacceptable stuff to the community is going into the shadow. And then at some point, they're kind of a shell of themselves because they're just this persona of positive thinking yeah. that is supposed to promote the teaching and the teacher. And, I, and there's a real danger to that. And it's a very kind of, I think, slippery slope once that starts getting promoted because there's a loss of authenticity People no longer want to tell the truth. Right. They're afraid to become a whistleblower if they see something abusive happening because that's against that whole paradigm of positive thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that you wrote about the whistleblowers and that I, I, it's so important, but it's got to be a difficult process to get to that point where you kind of have a sort of awakening in a sense 
uh, of what's going on and then say, I have to act. And you mentioned this a few times in the book, how what is so crucial is that we have to tell the truth. We need these whistleblowers. We have to have the uh, uh, those who are claiming truth or exposing what's happening. Yeah, you know, the Me Too movement really supported women, brought women together in all these secular arenas, in the workplace, in the military, in universities, and so on. But it didn't really move into the spiritual or religious arena. And I think that, like you said, to move from a bystander to a whistleblower is really challenging. It puts us up against our own belief in ourselves, our own, whether we have the courage, whether we'll look like a fool, whether we'll be excommunicated, you know, whether we'll lose everything um, that's precious to us. And so, but at the same time, silence is complicit. And so, you know, if, if people don't speak up, when they see some kind of, it doesn't even have to be abuse, it can be covert shadow behavior. You know, it can be contempt, a look of contempt, or a touch on someone's body. You know, it can be very covert. And yet, if we don't say something, then it can move into more overt activity. It can move into verbal abuse or sexual assault or some other kind of coercion, you know, sexual manipulation. Like if you, you know, if you have sex with me, you'll become enlightened. If you don't, you'll have bad karma for lifetimes, right? I mean, this is abusive. Mm -hmm. And I think that when people know about that, and deny it or dismiss it, they become complicit. Mm. So, and there's a lot of what I call spiritual rationalization. So they use the philosophy in order to defend the behavior. Well, he's enlightened, so he's doing it for their own good, or he's gonna raise their Kundalini with sex, right? Or whatever the rationalization. So it's very tricky stuff. Yeah. It's not easy, right and wrong. It's very tricky stuff. Right. Now that spiritual rationalization, is that along the lines of the crazy wisdom where it's being justified? It. Yeah. That can be part of it. So there are these lineages that justify bad behavior by saying it's crazy wisdom, meaning that it will shake you out of your attachments and out of your worldview, and it will wake you up to another reality. And, you know, like Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche and Rajneesh use that to explain their behavior. There are scholars who actually have looked at the history and say there's no such thing as crazy wisdom, right. trying to trace it back to China and, you know, traditions in Asia. So I don't know the history, whether that's accurate or not. But it's a rationalization for bad behavior. Yeah. And, you know, in the case of Trungpa and his alcoholism and his sexual abuse 
and then three generations now of abusive teachers in that community. So, and I, I don't mean to just call him out because there's so many others, but you know, it's there's a lack of empathy in that. Calling it crazy wisdom tells me that you're not connected to that other human being and his or her emotional body, trauma body, faith, you know, because the impact that that behavior is going to have could affect this person for the rest of her life. So yeah. it's tricky stuff. Yeah. But then it begs the question of, you know, especially with the example of Targum Trungpa Rinpoche, what do we then do with the teachings? Well, you know, he was brilliant. His books were fantastic. So were Osho's books. So were Adi Da's books, right? You can, I can keep going. I mean, some of these teachers are absolutely brilliant. So what does that tell us? They had high cognitive development. They may have had high spiritual development. They didn't have high emotional and moral development. Mm. They just didn't. And so what do we do with the teachings? Well, you know, there is a, an organization now called the Religion and Sexual Abuse Project, a group of scholars that's looking at abuse in Buddhist communities and trying to kind of respond to these questions and address that and, and you know, see where to go from here. Apparently, the Dalai Lama knew all this was happening, as well as with Soyal Rinpoche, a whole bunch of other Tibetan Buddhist teachers, and he didn't do anything about it. So I think that's because he didn't want to lose the teachings and the institutions that support the teachings of Tibetan Buddhism. So these are difficult choices. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there are ways, I interview people in the book who talk about ways to kind of redefine the teacher-student relationship, change the vows, because people have to take a vow never to question a teacher, never to doubt. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe that is no longer appropriate in the 21st century. So there are ways to kind of rethink these things without losing everything. Yeah. But it seems like that would be so difficult because often it's going to go against very long-standing tradition. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I remember because one of the examples you gave in the book was the Satya Sai Baba. And I, I became a little obsessed with Sai Baba around 2001, the first time I was in Nepal, because they had pictures of him everywhere. And then I began in my research and I did a graduate level paper on him and found out that he was molesting young boys. And I remember a very common idea that came up was from his community and from, you know, in India, this idea, they're like, well, but this is something that our gurus do. And you just, it's just part of the tradition. Yeah. It's just part of the tradition. Yeah. And some of them were molested in monasteries, yeah. you know, as children. I remember when, I don't know if you've heard of Vishwananda, it's a more contemporary teacher. 
and a very, very close friend of mine got involved with him and she was really getting high. She was having amazing experiences with him. And then it came out that he was molesting boys, mm. male disciples. And she was in this total quandary of what to do. You know, should she let that stop her from being his student? Should she go to the press and tell everybody? Should she just be silent and disappear? Um, and it was very painful. I mean, these are not easy choices to make. Right. It was very painful for her. So, you know, nothing simple here. You know, nothing yeah. black and white. Right. I think, you know, the last part of the book is about spiritual shadow work, which is how to recover from these experiences, how to kind of self-reflect in a way that we can take back our projections recover our own authentic intuitions and feelings, you know, reconnect to the body's knowledge. I interviewed so many people who felt a danger in their bodies and ignored it. Yeah. So, you know, how do we recultivate all of those kind of natural abilities that we give up in these situations? And that doesn't mean that we stop seeking or practicing or even teaching it doesn't mean, have to mean that it means that we do it with shadow awareness sure. we add shadow awareness to the toolkit of our spiritual practices yeah yeah i like that a lot and it seems like what's also required is you know even going into spiritual communities the need to develop some kind of discernment so we don't fall into those traps in the first place. That's right. Yeah. That discernment or discrimination comes out of what I was just describing, our bodily knowing, our intuition, you know, our capacity to see red flags, yeah. to smell it, yeah. you know, to recognize what is resonating with us. What is this projection about? What am I giving to this teacher? And does that teacher deserve that? And maybe I need to watch for six months to see if this person can earn my trust and not give away my time without pay, not give away my value, not allow myself to be cut off from family. You know, all these kinds of things can help. So again, it's not, I'm not an anti-cult person saying that yeah. these are all cults and now you go back into conventional society. It's not what I'm right. saying. Because many people are lifelong seekers mm -hmm. and some are finders. And so we're, this is not about ending that. It's about doing it with a deeper awareness of the risks yeah. around the shadow. Yeah. Yeah. And as more and more people are leaving these traditions and it becomes individualized in many ways, I think that is so important. And I know we're running out of time here, but uh, the, I'll just say, I, I really like the idea of reclaiming the body because I see that the body becomes the shadow in so many of the traditions because it's like, well, the material, the bodily is so unimportant. What's important yeah. is the spirit, right? Right. And one of the things that came to my mind as you were speaking is 
with this spiritual journey and these ideas of enlightenment is this idea that, you know, yeah, but we always have to go back down. We can make the ascent, but there's always, we always have to make the descent. You know, it's, you know, you go out of the cave, but then you have to go back into the cave. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The ascent descent thing doesn't quite, no. it's a spiral. Oh, okay. Right. Like that. Yeah, it's yeah. a spiral, right? Okay. We, we have a spiritual, an experience of a spiritual state and it doesn't last. And we reconnect with psychology and embodiment and we practice and we have another spiritual state and we may not go back to the same place. Mm. We may not land in the same developmental stage, right? <clears throat> we continue to evolve. Okay. So if we do the work, we continue to evolve. So I wanted to take a moment and invite our listeners. I'm going to be organizing groups to do spiritual shadow work. They're free. They're online. They're leaderless groups. And you'll go through the book together and do the practices together in community. <clears throat> if that interests you, you can shoot me an email, honeyzweig, Z-W-E-I-G, at gmail.com, and put spiritual shadow work in the subject line for me. Please don't send me a long story because I get too much email. <laughs> but let me know your time zone. And I'll connect you with other people for these groups. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you for that. So I know we're at the end of the time. So you've got the shadow work groups. What else do you have on your plate? Well, people can go to connieswag.com and see all the workshops I'm doing. They can see videos of the inner work of age and also meeting the shadow and connect with me in all kinds of ways. Okay. Well, wonderful. Well, Connie, again, thank you so much for your time and all the wisdom that you bring to the table. I am so grateful for the work that you do. This was a great interview. Thank you, Nick. Okay. Well, thank you. Really enjoyed it. Yes, me too. Me too. And that's a wrap on episode 93 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio and would like to support my work, and please support my work, please consider becoming a patron. Uh, you can find a link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd prefer to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I will be tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help with the podcast is to share it with friends, family, co-workers, anyone that you think will enjoy it. And please share it on social media too. Help me grow my audience. That really is one of the best ways that you can help and support the podcast. So one more time, if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. 
make sure you hit that notification bell so you'll be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.